Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives change through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from a special guest speaker. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. What I'd like to do is pray for us, and uh, then we are going to continue this week our study of 2 Peter. So if you would, join with me in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you today for life and for breath. Uh, again, even as we just sang uh, that, um, really that doxology, Lord, that we praise you, Father, we praise you, Son, we praise you, Spirit, our God, three in one. I pray by your Spirit you meet with us now. You are our one and only teacher, Lord Jesus, and so I pray that you'd be pleased to draw into us those things we need to follow you more faithfully, to cut out from us those things we need to let go of to follow you more faithfully, that you would be glorified in our midst. In your name, amen. So we're going to continue through Second Peter in chapter 2. Uh, Peter, right? Peter eyewitness, eyewitness to Jesus' teaching and his travels, to his miracles, to his trial and his arrest, or his arrest and his trial, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. Peter, one of three of Jesus' really closest friends during his earthly ministry, Peter, who tragically denied our Lord at his arrest and was restored by Jesus back to ministry. This is the Peter that we are hearing from. It is the fisherman who became an apostle, a man who failed terribly, but went on to live a life of faithfulness to Christ all the way to the tape. And this is a second letter that we have from Peter where he's writing to churches, uh, Christians, certainly Israelite Christians, but also made up of Gentile believers who have been kind of out and dispersed into another region, and he's writing to them as they are facing more and more trouble because of Jesus, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. This letter, it really is a farewell letter. It's a farewell letter from Peter where he's reminding the churches of what was most important He's warning them about future dangers, and he's calling them to continue growing in the faith even after he, Peter, passes on. And in our section today in chapter 2, Peter's going to be continuing these warnings he's giving about false teachers who will arise from within the church and will intentionally, along with areas of ignorance, mislead and deceive the church. And Peter is going to pull no punches in the language that he's going to use. We know from the context of the letter, he believed his own life would be ending soon, so he's not mincing words in this farewell address about the very serious danger that these false teachers represent. Now, I want to zoom back a little bit and and 
get some big picture. Because one of the risks that we run into when we do studies and preaching sort of verse by verse, which is great, it's a great way to preach, but one of the dangers with it is we can become a bit myopic. We can sort of miss the forest for the trees. We might learn a portion of something really well, but maybe not hang on to the big picture. And this is a really short letter, three chapters. Originally, it most certainly would have been read aloud to the believing community over and over again in entirety. I'm not doing that to you right now, but I do want to zoom out a little bit and give us some perspective of of where this message is coming from, because he's using some very strong language. The, The gospel message and the message of Jesus has, and the teaching of the apostles has always faced opposition. It has always faced opposition. There have always been attempts to take the message of Jesus and to reshape it, to cut some things, to add some things, and to make it fit another worldview, another way of looking at reality. There have always been attempts to do this. Remember, the gospel of the kingdom of God was birthed into the world of first century Israel with its many different expressions of Judaism, the Jewish faith, and that like wildfire, it spread across the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire with its own pantheon of gods and goddesses. And mixed into that, you have the various cultic worship of all the different conquered peoples that the Romans had conquered. And so through aspects of conquest and travel and trade, you have a wild mix of beliefs and practices and deities, gods and goddesses. And into that, here comes this message of this ancient Semitic people saying there is no, there is one God over all things who has promised redemption to humanity and his king has come and through his own life and death and resurrection has inaugurated his kingdom and he calls all to repentance and new life under his authority. And that message just flies in the face of everything. So there's conflict that is going on right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, Christianity is facing challenges both from outside but and from within the Christian church. And if you read the early Christian writings, not just the Bible, but other early writings, they are markedly apologetic, making, giving a reasoned explanation for what the Christians really believed, what they really taught, what Jesus and the apostles had really handed down as all these differing and, and altering ideas about Jesus are constantly coming into view in the midst of the church experiencing a widespread and intensifying persecution. And even once that persecution in the Roman Empire begins to calm down in the beginning of the fourth century, though persecution's always continued, right? India present day is an excellent example. But when it starts to calm down in the Roman Empire, these challenges just keep on happening. Every culture that the gospel goes into, every new generation faces these challenges, including our current generation right now in Harris, Fort Bend County, 21st century America. These things are what happen. And Peter wants us to be aware of this, to be informed. What happens is people take the name of Jesus and they use it in name only and add or remove various things in order to support their true first love, in order to fulfill or serve their real master. And so this is the warning that Peter is going to bring about this. Um, Now, I want to frame the letter specifically because, again, the passage we're looking at has just got a whole bunch of strong, almost epithets against people. In the end of of chapter 3, 
Peter says a couple of things that I think are the handhold to understand the whole letter. And he says this in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He says, you therefore, beloved, he's writing to Christians, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you're not ignorant. You know this is going to happen. We'll see that these false teachers are ignorant in certain ways, but you're not. You know this is going to happen. And because you know this stuff is going to take place, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, lose your steady footing, lose your solid direction. Conversely, instead of having that happen to you, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Imagine a sea voyage, okay? Not a cruise ship. Cruise ships are kind of ugly, but no offense if you work on a cruise. Uh, like, a, like a ship that's got sails, maybe a motor to it, the kind of thing that's in a really, really good adventure story, okay? And you get out to sea, and the sight of the shore has long since vanished. And while you're out at sea, you, uh, someone told me in the first service, but I forgot, like you, I'm not a sailor. You, uh, you raise the sails to get wind, right? So you drop the sails or whatever, you put the sails away and you turn off the engine. Okay. What will become of you? You're at the mercy of the tide. You're at the mercy of the current and the wind along the surface. You may steer the rudder, but you're going to get carried where things are going. But conversely, if the sails are up and full of the Spirit of God and the engine is running on His Word and the community of His saints, now you have the ability, even though those currents are still there and the wind, now you can stay the course. You can remain steady. And this is an image of what Peter is saying in the letter. These things are going to happen. They are serious. And as we'll see today, they're evil. There's not good. But you don't need to be paranoid. You don't need to be in fear. You need to be wise and informed. And if you're growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, you can stay steady. Again, in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter warned them. He said, as false prophets arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, the Lord, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. When Peter uses this language from among the people, he's drawing in the entire redemptive history of the people of God, of the nation of Israel, in different times, in different places. False prophets would come from among the people. And there were false teachers in Peter's day, and there's false teachers in our day too. This is a continuing thing that happens. And they look to mislead the people from among the people. Now, I want to make a point here. Peter is not telling us this so that we'll be paranoid, you know? Wait, it's going to happen from within. Is it, is it you? Is it me? It's like that Spider-Man meme with the three Spider-Men. They're always pointing at each other or whatever. You guys don't get that? Okay. Or the end of the off, that episode of The Office where they're like, it's not me. Is it, is it that thing, you know? Is it you? Is it you? He's not telling us this so that we'll be paranoid. It's going to happen. Somebody from among us is not okay. I'll tell you a story. In the year, most of you know, we spent about a decade in Hungary, which was a post-communist nation. In World War II, they were under Hitler, Nazis. And then afterwards, lots of nations don't have governments. And so they need help. So they get put under Stalin's communism. So they go from Nazis to communists, from Hitler to Stalin, frying pan to the fire. And, you know, it's communism. Communism's great. Everybody's equal. Everybody's equally poor. 
Everybody's equal. Everybody equally gets all of their belongings confiscated by the state. Everybody's equal. Everybody equally can't buy bread at the store. Everybody's equal. Everybody equally has no opportunity. Everybody's equal. Everyone is equally paranoid of the state. I'll tell you one story. Uh, there's a guy who's working in, because I, I, I intentionally, I would intentionally, once I learned the language, I intentionally met with people of the older generation, the older Hungarians who lived through those years to hear firsthand stories of what it was like. And so an example is this, working in an office and the boss calls, calls this guy in and says to him, you know, you're doing a fantastic job. We're very, very happy with you. You're a good member of the, the party the Communist Party. You're a good member of the party. In fact, you're such a good member of the party, I've got a special job for you. There are some of you among your friends and your coworkers who are not so faithful. So your job is to find out who they are, report them back to me. And just so you know this is serious, I have already assigned someone else the job to only watch you. How do you like to live in that? Friends, coworkers, stop talking to each other. Married couples, stop speaking to each other in the home through fear that through the thin-walled apartments somebody would hear and they would get reported to the state. That's not what Peter's after. He doesn't want a church. He's not telling us, watch out, watch out, be the police. And there are Christians like that. There are Christian leaders like that who are not false teachers, but they make it their whole ministry to make sure you know who they're against and who doesn't make the cut. That's not what we're called to. We're called to a redemptive ministry that recognizes error, works towards reconciliation, but when it can't be had, then separation must take place. So Peter's not calling us for paranoia. He's not doing it for that. He wants us to have godly discernment. So let's start in. We're going to jump into the second half of chapter 2, verse 10, and uh, we're just going to kind of march through this, okay? Here we go. Continuing his description, he says, these false teachers are bold and willful. They're, they're reckless and they're headstrong. They're bold and willful, and they don't even tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Blasphemy is not just that one really bad word. It's, it's teaching, advocating, endorsing false things about God and about what he's revealed. And these, it says these false teachers, they're so bold and willful, and they blaspheme um, they don't even tremble as they do blasphemous things about the glorious ones. Now, this is a difficult piece here. Who are these glorious ones? And scholars wrestle with this a lot. Are these uh, other believers? Are these angelic beings? Are these fallen angelic beings? Um, personally, I think it's most likely uh, fallen angelic beings. I'll explain why in a sec. It relates to the book of Jude. But that's not his point. The main emphasis, don't miss the main emphasis, is the hubris, the pride, the willfulness of these false teachers and the kind of reckless things that they go running into. He says they don't even tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. When you look at the book of Jude, it's the next letter over, written by one of Jesus' half-brothers, one chapter. Uh, most likely, Peter had access to this letter when he wrote his own, or maybe vice versa, but I think Peter probably had it. They deal with a lot of the same themes, false teachers. A lot of the same examples are used. And in Jude's letter, he goes a bit further. He says, he's talking about the willfulness of these false teachers. And he says, when the archangel Michael was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, you can go research that on your own, he didn't pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but rather he said, the Lord rebuke you. Get that. What did Christ say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
He, he, the archangel doesn't go in on, I'm going to take care of this. The Lord rebuke you. But these false teachers, it seems like, they're so caught up in themselves in a half ignorance and their hubris, they go running into all of these spiritual proclamations and messing with things. They don't even understand what they're doing. As one scholar puts it, where angels fear to tread, these fools go rushing in. It's reckless. It's a reckless type of spirituality. Let's continue on. Whereas angels... Who, though greater in might and power, again, some questions there, most likely greater in might and power even than the false teachers, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, that are born to be caught and destroyed, saying they're ruled by their instinct. They don't have, he's not making a statement about animalia. He's making the point that these folks do not have self-control. They lack maturity. They lack discernment. They are ruled by their desires. They are ruled by their emotions like animals of instinct. They're just driven by those feelings. They blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. Actually, let me back up. Yeah. These, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. And then he begins some sort of ironic poetic language almost. They're dis- in their destruction, they're destroyed. In, in their they're destroyed in their destruction. The English kind of loses it a bit, but they're in the midst of this destruction they're doing. They end up being destroyed. He repeats it in another way. Suffering wrong for the wage of their wrongdoing. The wisdom literature speaks of when people come to you and they say, hey, you know what? We're gonna get over on these other folks, so join in with us and we're gonna split the spoil. We're gonna seek innocent blood and we will share the treasure. And the literature says, "Don't, don't take in with people like that. The trap, the pit that they dig for others, they themselves will fall into. This is the recklessness and the willfulness that characterizes some of these false teachers. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, to be extravagant, laissez-faire, over the top, during the day. What are you supposed to do in the day? You should be taking care of what is responsible for you to do. It's a sense of self-indulgence, a luxurious way of going about things. Ecclesiastes 10 speaks about, woe to you when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Why? Because children are bad? No, children are a blessing from the Lord. But when your king is a child, doesn't know how to govern the kingdom. Your princes are to be about doing the business of the kingly court and taking care of the kingdom. Responsibility. But when your princes are partying in the morning and your king is a child, what's going to happen to the kingdom? There's things to be done, and these folks are on vacation. They're not there. These leaders, they're not there. Um, Ecclesiastes 5.11 says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning. Why? Because getting up in the morning is bad? No. The problem is the second half of the verse. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the night as the wine inflames them. They have the lyre and the harp and the tambourine. I'm a guitarist. I'm, I'm in with this, right? Guitar, this is good. That's not the problem. It's what happens later. They have the lyre and the harp and the 
tambourine and the flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands, right? These warnings are here. I think of uh, C.S. Lewis, who drawing on the classics, speaks of maturity in the sense of being, you should have your desires submitted to your will, what you've determined should be done, and your will submitted to the Lord, that we know from God what ought to be done. And so our will is submitted to the Lord and our desires, which are so fleeting. I want this, I want that, I feel strong about this, I don't feel strong about that. Desires are all over the place. Sometimes they're accurate and useful and great. A lot of the time they're deceptive and destructive. And a person who's ruled by their desires is utterly dangerous, inconsistent, unpredictable, unreliable. And these are the types of things that these false teachers are running into. They're being led by their desires. He goes on, he says, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Blots and blemishes, Christian, that should bring up some language for you, right? He's, he's arguing from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. That's the Bible that he, they had, didn't have the New Testament yet. He's arguing from Scripture, from the Old Testament. Blots and blemishes has to do with the sacrificial system. And if you go back and you look through Torah, the first books of the Bible, it's like nearly 40 times, 37-ish times, this phrase of blots and blemishes comes up. You've got a couple times in Exodus, 18 in Leviticus, a whole other chunk in Numbers, talking about these are animals that are not fit for sacrifice to, to come before the Lord. Most telling, most telling is if you go further to Leviticus 21, 21, it says that no man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Peter's pulling on this idea. These false teachers are utterly disqualified from leading anything. They are disqualified. They are not qualified. They're not fit to serve in leadership. They are not qualified to do that. They are self-indulgent. They disqualify themselves and they threaten the holiness of the church or the ministries that they're leading. It's a serious risk. They revel in their deceptions even while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery or full of an, an adulteress, insatiable for sin. They are captured by their own sexual desire. They're driven by lust, never satisfied. Always it's on their mind. And we're not saying, I don't even want to get into that. They're driven by this. They're driven by this. They entice unsteady souls. This, this is evil. These are people who are in the church, unsteady souls, who maybe from their own choice or maybe they're coming out from the world and they're trying to grow closer to Christ and they aren't in a stable footing. And Peter is saying that there will be false teachers who will entice these people out, out of the church where they should be the most safe. It's, it's, it's this evil and as long as they pursue this, as we're going to see, they are under a curse from the Lord. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. It's a skill. It's a skill. 
They run to the money. They run to the influence. More titles, more name, my name on everything. These are people that make disciples of themselves and do not point in humility and point people to Jesus, our Lord, our true teacher. But they make their own disciples. They get the glory. They are accursed children. Now, he's not saying that God's going around cursing children. That's not his point. It's a simply a language that they have put themselves at odds with God, severe odds with God with, in light of what they're doing. We see this language elsewhere in the Bible. In Isaiah 57, he speaks of children of transgression. Uh, Ephesians 2, Paul himself references people who are going the wrong way as children of wrath. And a few verses later, conversely, children of light. In 1 Peter, he makes the comment himself using the phrase obedient children. He's pointing out the position that the choices of these people and the direction that these false teachers have taken, he's pointing out where they've put themselves in relation to the Lord. They're accursed children. And then he's going to pull in another Old Testament reference. He says, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. Now, that's a whole other thing you can chase because the early Christians were called the way. There's an interesting thing in Isaiah about Go and prepare the way for the Lord. And those of you that have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find this all throughout there as well, this way. That's a fun thing for you to follow later. But Peter says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. What are you doing, Peter? Is this where Shrek comes from? I'm thinking, there's some royalties. There's royalties due. Somebody's not getting paid. He's, he's pulling on, excuse me, the book of Numbers. He's, he's arguing from the Old Testament again, from the Hebrew Bible, and he's saying these false teachers, they love to get gain, even from their own wrongdoing, and he calls it the error of Balaam. If you don't remember, you have the people of Israel, the, the descendants of Jacob, they settle in Egypt, they go into slavery for 400 years, then they're brought out miraculously, God goes to bring them to the promised land, they rebel, they got to wander for 40 years in the desert till a whole generation of rebellious people dies off, then he brings them down to Sinai, they get a one-year boot camp to Torah boot camp to, for one year to be reacquainted with the God of Israel, and then he's bringing them into the promised land, and over all these many hundreds of years, they have multiplied. It's a huge number of people. So the tribal kings and leaders in the region are freaked out because here comes this massive group, and one of them, this guy Balak, he goes to this dude, Balaam. Balaam is, he's a, he's a diviner. He's a seer. He the, he, he gets into spiritual things that really we, in ways that we're not supposed to be doing. But that's Balaam's gig. And so Balak goes to Balaam and he gives him some incentive to curse Israel as they go to travel through the land. And, and as Balaam goes to seek this, God tells him, no, there's kind of a whole thing I'm doing here, Balaam. You're not going to do that right now. But every time Balak asks him again, he keeps going back to the Lord. And eventually God tells him, go, go ahead, travel with these people. And as the story unfolds, it gets to a point where Balaam is traveling on a donkey and an angel appears. And now don't think, fat baby cherub, don't think uh, uh, weird rendering with a million eyeballs. Like think like Lord of the Rings with an angelic glow, like serious business. And Balaam can't see it, but the donkey does. 
And the donkey's like, uh uh-uh, turns aside, and then the thing appears again, and he's on a path, and he, the donkey won't move, and he smashes Balaam's leg against the wall, and Balaam's beating the donkey, you know, and the donkey speaks. And through this conversation, Balaam realizes, this donkey just saved my life. Now, here's what's very interesting. Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. If you follow the story later and you get into 31 in Numbers, Balaam goes among the Midianite kings to get his recompense for what he was doing. And and in that period, the Midianite kings get slaughtered and Balaam gets killed with them. And the whole reason he's there is to get his gain from his wrongdoing. There's a terrible end that awaits these false teachers if they persist in their false teaching. Christ is there, redemption is there, forgiveness is there, reconciliation is there. But if they're persisting in this, they're destroyed in their destruction. Now, I I want us to be careful when we hear all of this really strong language from Peter that we don't do the very natural thing, I'm guilty too, that we don't do the very natural thing of like, I know who Peter's talking about, man. It's them people out there. So those people we hear about on TV, it's, it's people here in Harris and Fort Bend County who have Christian on the building, but they're taking the teaching of Jesus and they're chopping stuff off and they're adding other stuff and they're bending it to serve whatever cultural philosophy or ideology or worldview happens to be in vogue because you don't want to lose people or offend anybody. Okay, yeah, those things are out there, but Peter is speaking to you and he is speaking to me. In chapter two, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse 10, remember he said, therefore, brothers, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm, to confirm your calling and your election, be all the more diligent to confirm God's choosing, God's calling of you to be steady in your faith. This is a, this is a dire warning for every one of us. There are people in, within the church who will be led astray by false teachers, Who are we? We're people in the church. (laughs) He's talking about us. Again, not for paranoia's sake, but for application's sake. We need to think and look at in the mirror. Be all the more diligent. Be all the more careful. All the more humble and all the more serious about our faith. And serious doesn't mean lacking humor, right? There are Christians who think being serious is like a kind of holiness, and that's terrible. God invented humor. Um, But to be serious, to be humble, to be all the more about how we are doing in Christ, that we are firm in our standing, that our sails are up and filled with the Spirit, that the engine is running on the Scriptures and the community of faith, and that we're navigating the currents as we go, that we should be all the more diligent to do the things that Peter said in chapter 1 and add to our faith virtue and knowledge, and self-control, and steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. As he closes in three, that we should keep growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Paul references elsewhere in Philippians 2, verse 4, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my absence, but much more, or not only my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. These, these are apostolic 
warnings, admonitions, and therefore they are the warnings of Christ. Be careful about your faith. Tend it. Take care of it. Nurture it. Don't just assume everything's always going to be fine. Take care of your faith. Grow it. Grow it. Don't be arrogant about how we approach these things. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Christ's call to follow him is a call that goes into eternity. It's not a call to follow him for just a little while or with just a little bit of who you are. You don't just follow him until you retire or follow him until the kids get out of the house or you don't wait and when I get out of college, then I'll follow him. No, if you call Jesus Christ your Lord and God is your father, then you are called to follow him with all of who you are for eternity. It is an essential characteristic of your identity as a Christian. Now, I want to close with a little bit of a practical thought here, dealing with how can we, how do we go about identifying these false teachers and this false teaching? Because there's a lot of stuff that Christians can disagree about. There's a lot of Bible stuff Christians can disagree about, and they're still Christians. They're just disagreeing about various issues. But there are those core things that when we disagree, now we're talking about a, a different Jesus. So how do we grow in this skill? Uh, as Daniel, I think, preached last week, um, Christ is the key. And he's absolutely right in that. Christ is the key. Know the gospel of the kingdom of God. Learn how Jesus preached the gospel in the gospels. Very often, we will run to Paul's letters, and Paul's wonderful, but we'll get a didactic formula for something for salvation. But how did Jesus actually preach the gospel in the gospels? It's there. Learn how the New Testament writers preached the gospel from the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They're preaching from the Hebrew Bible. What is Genesis 12 and 15, 2 Samuel 7, and all these, what do these things have to do with the gospel? Because there were mysteries to it, Jew and Gentile and different things, but there was a lot of it that's there, so much so that that's what the New Testament writers were preaching from. Learn the gospel of the kingdom. Years ago, I worked for a bank, and when they trained us on how to recognize counterfeit money, the way they did it was they took the real dollars and fives and twenties and stuff, and they showed us the things that the treasury put in there, the little crazy things that validated as the genuine article, as an actual dollar bill. And we had to study that and memorize it and know it. And when counterfeits came along that were missing something or added something, you just recognized it because you were so familiar with the real thing. They didn't train us on the counterfeits because they're always changing. They're always coming and going. But the money changes. The money looks like Disney money now. But the, the, uh, the gospel and the scriptures, it doesn't change. Know Christ. Know the gospel of the kingdom. And when things come along that just aren't quite right, you and in community, we're going to sense these things much more easily. But I, I caution with this. It's not just intellectual. For we, by faith, can know the fellowship of the Father and the power of the Spirit through faith in the Son, firsthand experience with God. To know that His Spirit testifies with my spirit that I am His child. 
And let's learn these things and practice them in community so that all the more better we will know Christ and his gospel. We have no fear of false teachers. We're not uninformed. We know these things happen and will continue to happen. And we'll grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, ever better knowing the real thing, ever better to identify when ideas or ideologies or philosophies or various claims rise up from within the church that claiming to be Christian but are in fact carrying people away rather than remaining steady in the faith once for all handed to us by Christ. Amen? I want to pray for us, and we're going to have a time of communion together. I ask the ushers to, to start to pass that out. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your servant, Peter, and his life and his example. I thank you, God, that you take great pains to keep us not uninformed. You take great pains to inform us. Lord, I pray for your grace for me and for all of us, that we would in truth have your joy and we would also look with redemptive eyes, with restorative eyes, when we face questionable things. Father, this is something it's so easy for us to get wrong where we so often rush to judgment and condemnation or we equally as often fail to even ask a question. Help us in humility, Lord, to look to leaders as fathers, as mothers, to ask questions in in humility, to do things in community with a heart for restoration. But guide us in your truth, Lord, so that when separation and when things need to be identified as false, we have the courage to do that and we have the wisdom to do it with grace. In your good name, amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.